Welcome to Host the Future podcast. I'm Madam Cronin. I'm Justin Clark. And today we're discussing libertarianism and statism. That means we'll discuss the Nolan chart to go over some of the different alignments, libertarian, authoritarian, liberal, and conservative. We'll talk a little bit about the origins of libertarianism and statism. Then we'll go into arguments for statism, really steel manning the case of why we need the state, why we need government. And then we'll steel man the case for libertarianism and give reasons why we should support more power and rights to the individual as opposed to the state. Then we'll look at some key issues and how libertarians and statists would respond to each of those issues. And then finally, we'll get into the future scenarios. Sound good? Sounds good. Awesome. So let's start with the Nolan chart. This is a famous chart developed by the guy who started the Libertarian Party in the United States in 1971, right after we went off the gold standard. And for those who are just listening, you can see that at the top of the chart, there is libertarianism at the very top center. The bottom center is authoritarianism. On the left is liberalism. And on the right is conservatism. And then you have a box in the middle, which is centrism. And I've noticed that in our own political discourse in America, we spend a lot of time talking about the liberal conservative divide and that spectrum, but there's almost no attention given to the libertarian authoritarian spectrum. And I find that it's actually much more important how someone stands on the libertarian authoritarian spectrum versus how they stand in the liberal conservative spectrum as far as predicting what their beliefs are and what sort of policies they would support. Mm -hmm. So maybe yeah. you can, you want to give a brief overview of each of these segments and how you would describe them uh, in short? The, the name sort of speaks for itself in a way, but with authoritarianism, I generally think of it as a more centralized control and libertarianism is a little bit more on the decentral, well, a lot more on the decentralized control. And of course there's a spectrum here. We have, the right now, the society we're, what we're living in is somewhere in between, right? We have some we have some things that are a little bit more on the, the centralized control realm, like the police departments, and we have the fire departments that are more in the centralized control. And then we also have a free market to an extent, you know, where there's debates about how how um, efficient the free market is in in some parts of the world, but you know, it's again, we're on a spectrum. So, yeah. And I think one of the unique cases for the United States is that our constitution gives rights to individuals, whereas most mm -hmm. constitutions give rights to the state and they tell the, mm -hmm. they basically limit what the people can do, whereas our constitution limits what the government can do. And so the United States has historically been more of a libertarian focused society, whereas you could consider like, you know, China today, it's definitely have more of an authoritarian constitution mm -hmm. and how they operate. And gotcha. I would say from a philosophical perspective, the authoritarian political philosophy is rooted in Keynesian economics, which is this idea that we need the state to provide some stability because the free market will not provide stability on its own. So we need the state mm -hmm. to enact policies such as quantitative tightening, quantitative easing to basically guide the market and spur demand if there's not enough demand and then tamp down demand if there's too much demand. 
whereas libertarianism really finds its roots in the Austrian school of economics, where all value is subjective. And fundamentally, the way the economy runs is based on individuals making decisions for themselves. And so Mm -hmm. the focus of Austrian economics is all about power to the individuals. And that's what creates prosperity in society, free individuals trading with one another. Whereas the Mm -hmm. Keynesian view is that there is a very real and important role for the government to play in order to have a well-functioning economy. Mm -hmm. And some of the important icons of libertarianism and statism the gadsden flag for libertarianism it's that snake with the don't tread on me you know that's probably the most iconic visual representation of libertarianism and Mm -hmm. statism would be more national flags Uh, i would say in particular like the eu flag the china flag i would say to a lesser extent the u.s flag just because we have that libertarian heritage Mm -hmm. and I would also say the most iconic things for libertarianism is Ayn Rand and Atlas Shrugged. You know, this was probably the biggest uh, book in the libertarian world. Yeah. And then Ron Paul, like, you know, growing up, the only libertarian I knew about was Ron Paul. And he kind of seemed like a kooky guy that was always going against the two, uh, you know, major nominees in any sort of election cycle. But he's been proven to actually be more right as the years go on. And now I think a lot of people are taking a second look at libertarianism. And I just want to say a a couple of quotes there. So Ron Paul has this Mm -hmm. quote that says, I don't want to run your life. I don't know how to run your life. I don't have the authority to run your life. And the Constitution doesn't permit me to run your life. (laughs) And and then Ayn Rand had a similar famous quote where she says, when you see that in order to produce, you need to obtain permission from men who produce nothing, when you see that money is flowing to those who deal not in goods, but in favors, when you see that men get richer by graft and by pull than by work, and your laws don't protect you against them, but protect them against you, when you see corruption being rewarded and honesty becoming a self-sacrifice, you may know that your society is doomed. So you can see the Atlas Shrugged view of the world is very much that the state is getting in, in the way of free people producing the wealth and prosperity that society depends upon. Um, so I would say that's that's kind of a nice overview of the two different sides of the spectrum, statism and libertarianism. And now maybe we can start by steel manning the arguments for statism. Why do we need government? Why can't we just all live in a laissez-faire type of society where there is no government? Yeah, I mean, right now, I think it's it, it seems, at least it seems obvious to me that there are some things that the free market just doesn't really take care of the same way that a um, you know a more centralized and statist approach you know would take care of it and kind of like I said earlier the police departments and the fire departments around the US are it's more of a, a socialist type of um, thing where the government is controlling these these entities and I can't imagine a world, at least with the current technology, where libertarianism can provide those kinds of services in the same way that a more centralized method can. Now, I think that as we project out into the future, we can talk about how different technologies might enable this kind of more decentralized 
thing, you know, the, the decentralized services, but, but for now it's like, there, there are definitely some things that it seems like a more centralized and coordinated approach can, can tackle the problems a little bit better. Well, there's definitely some classic arguments that statists will give as far as why we need the state. And the first one is who will build the roads? That's like the classic thing you always hear. Infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah, And it's true. I mean, you look at all of the 12 lane divided highways in Los Angeles where I live, and it seems unfathomable that people on their own could build this kind of infrastructure without some sort of centralized governing force to tax Mm. the people, use those funds to build the roads so that everything is functioning well, people can get to where they're going. And another example would be major public works projects like the Hoover Dam is this modern marvel where it's hard to even imagine building a structure to that scale that can benefit so many people without having centralized government. I would say one of the other major areas that you touched on, which was the police, but also the army. So how do we defend ourselves against foreign invaders? And, you know, World War II, could we really have fought D-Day and won World War II if we didn't have a powerful central government? Or could we have put together the Manhattan Project and created the first nuclear weapons to end World War II? Or could we have done other wonderful accomplishments like landing on the moon, you know, putting a man on the moon? And then I would say other major areas that people bring up are Social Security and also Medicare and Medicaid so that when you're a retired person and you're no longer contributing, the government takes care of you. Or if you're sick, the government will take care of you. Or if you're less fortunate, there's a safety net for you. Mm -hmm. And then the final thing I would say that is a pretty good argument, this to me is the strongest argument for statism, is that we need a powerful centralized government to counter other powerful centralized governments that might otherwise just run us over. So Mm -hmm. if we didn't have powerful United States federal government, could China basically take over the entire Western hemisphere as far as their Belt and Road Initiative and their more Mm -hmm. authoritarian policies? It's kind of like we need our authoritarian government to counter even worse authoritarian governments that are out there. And, you know, those, those to me seem like the most resonant arguments for statism. Yeah, just the, the centralized allocation of resources can be really useful. And, and I kind of have this feeling that there, depending on the level of technology, there are different types of governing structures that are more effective. So like in the earliest days of organizing humans, it might have been the case that, you know, monarchy was the best coordination that humanity had to offer because it was a way to just get people kind of believing in the same thing, maybe spreading religion. Like if the goal was to increase the size of civilization as much as possible, that might've been the starting point. However, now we're at a point where there's, there's enough individual autonomy that in, there are individual contributors and entrepreneurs that can build businesses that are extremely valuable to society. So maybe right now a true, like the capitalism structure is what works for us. And there might be a time where, you know, we move further out and the individual freedom and individual leverage and the ability to produce things and protect ourselves 
is so great through, I don't know, robots or some sort of some, some artificial intelligent agent in the, in the cloud or, you know, on the internet that's sort of just supporting us remotely, you know, that, that can help us um, be a little bit more effective as individuals. And then we can move even closer to the libertarian ideal. Um, yeah, that, that's so. a really interesting point. And I, I think it is kind of a double-edged sword where all of the dissemination of information where anyone on their phone has access to basically all the world's wealth of knowledge throughout all of mm-hmm. history. And not only that, but they can instantly see news that's happening on the other side of the world. So whereas in the past, it might have made sense to have all of the messengers would send messages to the king and then the king would decide Mm -hmm. what was best for his kingdom. And then slowly the information would disseminate to all the plebs who were (laughs) subject to that king. Now, basically people who are on Twitter know what's happening as soon as the president knows. So it's Mm -hmm. a fundamentally different type of environment, but Mm -hmm. that type of intelligence can be used both to liberate individuals in sort of a egalitarian Bitcoin type of society, or mm-hmm. it could be used to fully command and control individuals like we're seeing with the Chinese Communist Party and mm-hmm. the surveillance, the uh, surveillance states that, are, that is emerging, not only in China, but in other places as well, like North Korea and mm-hmm. you know, other countries. But now I think it's good to give the steel man argument for libertarianism. So we heard a lot of arguments for why the state needs to exist. The state needs to build the roads, needs to create an army to defend us, needs to uh, initiate major public works programs like the Hoover Dam and putting a man on the moon. What are the arguments for libertarianism? And I can maybe start this off and then you can mm-hmm. uh, add some thoughts. So mm-hmm. there's this famous meme, which is up until 1913, Americans kept all of their earnings Despite that, America still had schools, roads, colleges, railroads, subways, an army, and a navy. Tell me again why taxes are necessary. Before the Federal Reserve was created in 1913, America was going just fine. In fact, we called it the Gilded Age at the time. This was when there were all the the major railroads, all of this innovation, steel in Detroit, cars, the, the Model T, Ford, all of these major industries that created the success that America then enjoyed, uh, you know, beyond 1920s, you know, up until today was rooted in this rugged individualism and in not having a major centralized government. And there were in fact, no income taxes, no property taxes, no sales taxes. The literally the only taxes we had at the time were tariffs on imports. So we had import taxes, which favored American, domestic manufacturing, but everything worked fine. We had rail, we had roads, we had railroads, we had armies, firefighter, and and it seems hard to imagine how that was possible, but the incentives lead to giving us the infrastructure that we need. Because if you're a really wealthy person like Henry Ford or one of these, you know, oil barons or, or railroad barons, you're incentivized to make sure that there are the necessary roads and schools and other infrastructure that you need to have a workforce that does what's needed, you don't mm-hmm. necessarily need the federal government for that. With with this structure, I, I was wondering where the the funding comes from. So, like, if we have Henry Ford and Carnegie and you know the tycoons of the the 
those eras, did the U.S. government provide a lot of the funding for their projects or was it like, where did they make the money? Kind of like SpaceX. Yeah. Yeah. So they were generally self-funded. So the the rich barons of the time would fund what was needed. And it was actually Henry Ford that started the five day work week. And he initiated a you know minimum wage and benefits for his workers. So he kind mm-hmm. of instituted a lot of policies for his own corporation first, and then it became okay. the standard for other corporations. And so it's not like the government funded these things originally. It's more mm-hmm. just that the government has taken over those roles uh, as time has gone on. And I would say the, the single biggest difference is that before the Federal Reserve was created in 1913, Everything the government did was funded from taxes. So you'd have these import taxes and a few other small taxes that would fund any sort of program the government was running. Whereas after 1913, now the Federal Reserve could print money out of nothing, thus stealing from everyone who holds dollars by inflating the currency and thus devaluing the purchasing power of their dollars that they hold in order to fund all of these programs. And so you never usually hear about why did the Great Depression happen in the 1930s, but the reason it happened was because the Federal Reserve had warped the free market incentives from the time it was created in 1913 until the Great Depression. And if the Fed had never been created, it's highly, highly unlikely we would have had any kind of Great Depression thereafter. So, I mean, we can get into the arguments of does centralized monetary policy provide stability or does it actually accentuate instability? I would argue that it accentuates instability. Yeah, at least like long-term stability. There might be this like illusion of stability in the short term, but like, is it is it actually a robust system or does it does it just inevitably go through boom bust cycles? Exactly. Like one person called it, it's the uh, it's the Elvis diet where to get up in the morning, he needs stimulants, you know, when he was in his later career, and he was, you know, addicted to drugs, he needed stimulants to get going in the morning. And then he would do his shows, do his performances. And then in the evening, he needed downers to be able to fall asleep at night. And that's obviously not a healthy way to live. And that's pretty much how our economy has run since the Fed was created, (laughs) is you stimulate, stimulate, stimulate during the Great Depression and Great Recession. And you know, the the Mm post-COVID recession, and then you tighten, 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 and have these downers to create a new depression or recession as soon as things start to pick up. And so it's this Mm -hmm. intense yo-yoing that really is is, uh, not something we experienced under the gold standard. It really is something that became much more prevalent under the fiat standard Mm -hmm. of 1913, and then especially after 1971 when we went off the gold standard entirely. Mm -hmm. But in, oh yeah, go ahead. Well, I was, I was just going to give some numbers to really paint this picture. So, the cost of living in 1938: a new house was three thousand nine hundred dollars. Uh, a new car was eight hundred sixty dollars. The average rent was twenty seven dollars per month, and <laughs> Harvard University was only four hundred twenty dollars a year. So this just shows that. If there wasn't centralized monetary policy and the ability to print money out of nothing in order to fund the various projects that the government thinks are important, we would actually have a lower cost than what these numbers are. 
So a new house today would be less than 3,900 because over time, technology pushes prices down. But obviously that hasn't happened. Instead, the Fed has targeted 2% inflation per year, which basically means that the Fed is stealing all of that decrease in prices that would have happened plus 2%. And if you look at how various services or products have changed over time, everything the government has touched has gotten ridiculously expensive. So obviously the government has done a lot to subsidize healthcare. Hospital services are up like 250% since 1999. Uh, Colleges are up 200% since 1999. And then you look at things that are outside of, you know, the government hasn't touched things like wireless TVs, computers, cell phones, uh, cloud computing, all of these have actually gotten way cheaper. So they've decreased by like 90% in cost since 1999. So the libertarian argument is that while it may sound nice that the government funds these various programs to help out what the government thinks is most important, it actually mm-hmm. ends up being far worse outcome because you're basically warping the free market so that they no longer have to charge a fair market price. They'll charge whatever the government is willing to pay. And so the prices just keep going up and up and up because they basically have no risk of downfall. They're they're too big to fail. Yeah. And it's just a, a, it adds a huge inefficiency to the market. And it like when you add that much money, they're, they're inevitably grifters that, you know, there's just all these middle layers that have been added to society to the two markets to just economies in general where you have rent seekers and that kind of position themselves between the people with the money and the people producing things and that kind of environment doesn't lead to efficient markets which is the ideal that you know Ayn Rand talks about so there's it, it's it's hard to say what's what the uh the ideal trade-off is here between like where like where should how much money should the government be spending on things because like even SpaceX isn't most of their um, income from like government contracts it's like an efficient use of government money in a way whereas like you're not you're not making the government the producer but it doesn't seem like there's as many middle layers between the government dollars that are spent on space travel and exploration as there is with NASA, because we can, I mean, we can just see how expensive it is to send a rocket to space if you go with SpaceX or anything else, right? Like the, the privatized method just seems to work because the individual at the helm of that private company is way more incentivized to cut costs as much as possible and innovate as much as possible. So like, yeah, no, that's a good point. And SpaceX is an interesting case because basically NASA had become an organization that was unable to actually do anything innovative after, you know, the 1960s, 1970s. And it took a private corporation like SpaceX to actually pick up the baton and keep moving society forward as far as exploring space, creating a colony on Mars, creating renewable rockets. And you're Mm -hmm. right that SpaceX didn't do it entirely on its own. It did get some support 
from the government, just like Tesla mm-hmm. also got some support from the government. But I think it's a little bit unfair to use that against SpaceX or Tesla because that's yeah. the market they exist in, right? Mm-hmm. And w- there is no purely free market anymore. It's becoming more and more of a command economy where the government is the main buyer. And so therefore, it's not as important that you create a wealth generation machine that is well run and actually creates a profit. It's more important that you get brownie points from the government and that you do what the government likes. So it's mm-hmm. it's more of a status game now than a wealth creation game. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, you know, to consider like whether this is a good or a bad thing, I think it's really important to look at the numbers because numbers don't lie. Like you can't just... You can't, uh, you know, spin numbers as much as you can spin other narratives. And mm-hmm. there was recently a viral video of Stan, Stan Druckenmiller, one of the most famous, well-respected investors, was talking about how much national debt we've accumulated. And just to pay the interest on the debt is now almost as expensive as our defense spending. So I'm sure you've seen lots of charts of how much America spends on national defense, which is like mm-hmm. basically as much as like the next 10 countries combined. And now just the interest on the debt that America holds is almost as much as defense spending. And Stan Druckenmiller said by 2027, the interest expense alone on the debt eats all healthcare spending. By 2047, it eats all discretionary spending. So that means by 2047, the entire government budget that we have today will be spent on the interest on the debt, not even paying back the principal, but just the interest <laughs> on it. Oh, that's insane. And then, you know, so another argument or I guess a rebuttal that libertarians would have to status is that, you know, the, one of the biggest arguments is that we need a powerful government to defend ourselves in the case of war, especially a world war. But the libertarian rebuttal to that would be that wars are largely caused by powerful centralized governments that can spend all of their citizens' wealth through inflation on forever wars. And if you look at the various debt bubbles that have occurred, they all occur at the same time when there's world wars. So the last biggest debt bubble was World War II. We're now getting up to a similar level of debt to GDP ratio. And guess what? Now we're in war with Russia in Ukraine. And so there's a little bit of a question of, do these wars just all happen to coincide with these major debt bubbles? Or is it a tail wagging the dog scenario where because we have these major debt bubbles we have to deal with, we need an excuse to inflate the currency and spend all this money. And we can't blame our own past poor decision making with monetary policy we have to blame some other boogeyman, whether it's Putin or, you know, having to deal with a pandemic or any of these other crises or, or having to deal with climate change or whatever the crisis du jour may be. And I, it, seems, it seems to me like if there were truly a war that threatened America, even without a powerful centralized government, people would get together and defend ourselves. And I think a great example of that is in ancient Greece, there was all of these individual Greek city-states that all had their own autonomy, you know, Corinth and Athens and Sparta and all of these different Greek city-states. And then when the Persian empire came to invade them, 
like as shown in the movie 300, all of these Greek city-states got together to unite and fight against the major authoritarian threat that was at their doorsteps. Mm -hmm. So to me, the war argument is not a, an actual good argument for statism. In fact, I think it's uh, one of the best arguments for authoritarian, or sorry, for libertarianism is that mm -hmm. if we take a more libertarian approach, there will be fewer world wars. People won't have all their wealth stolen from them to, for this war spending. And even if we are threatened, we will come together because it's in our own self-interest to do so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it does seem like that would require everyone in the world to follow the libertarian path. Like if, if the U.S. just suddenly said to hell with the state and went full on libertarian, like you said earlier, part of this problem is we need to protect ourselves from other authoritarian regimes. And especially today, given basically how, how much technology has advanced, like with nuclear bombs, with autonomous drones, with these insanely expensive weapon systems, that would be hard to defend against as a small community even, you know, like you would, you would need a lot of resources to protect yourself against any military actor because the, the weapons have become so advanced these days. Um, but yeah. if you project that forward enough, I think, you know, things of, or the, the prices of these weapon systems will go down so far that, it might be possible that every individual could have a, you know, something to protect them, something to give, you know, give them the freedom to do what they want without having to worry about bad actors in the space. Cause there's always human nature at play. There will always be people that want to steal power for themselves and accumulate as much power as they possibly can and control as many people as possible it, I don't know, it, it's, it's hard to see a path to get there without technology advancing quite a bit to like, yeah. the true libertarian ideal. The same way that like there, there are practical problems with statism, right? Like even then you have people accumulating power that they don't necessarily have the bandwidth to provide in a, in a, in a way that's best for everyone. Like there's, there's just, when so many people are involved, it seems to be, uh, seems to be the way that we go is just some people accumulate power and some people are kind of, like you said, the plebs, you know, the people that are just kind of at the whims of the people with the power, whether that power is through wealthy individuals who started really strong companies what you know i still feel like that's i would rather live in that world where we have people that are actually in in the arena doing things instead of bureaucrats behind closed doors making all the decisions um so yeah totally i think you brought up another really interesting thing which is the libertarian stance on guns and defense and so now let's talk about how libertarians and statists would treat different issues. So let's take the issue of gun control first, because you brought that up. So mm -hmm. the classic statist take on gun control is guns are so dangerous. We have to get rid of these assault rifles. 
we have to get these weapons of war off the street. There's been too many school shootings. You know, when will there be enough bloodshed where we finally say enough is enough, no more guns? And it's really interesting that people never seem to realize that they're only advocating for civilians not to have guns. They're not advocating for police or FBI or CIA or ATF or any of these other agents of the state to not have guns, right? So really, it's civilian disarmament. Gun control is civilian disarmament. It's not gun control for the state and the agents of the state. It's only gun control for law-abiding citizens. And the United States is unique because we have the Second Amendment, which specifically gives rights to individuals to the right to bear arms. And this is because our founding fathers could see way back before that we could very easily run into another scenario, just like how the British were oppressing us and our rights. We could have a new authoritarian government suppress the rights of individuals if individuals didn't have the right to bear arms against that authoritarian state. Mm -hmm. And so I used to be more on the gun control side because I bought the argument that, A, it's more for our safety. But once you look at the examples of history of, you know, for every quote unquote mass shooter, who's just a, you know, crazy, depressed, mentally unwell person who goes and shoots up a school or something, there are thousands of people who have died at the hand of the state from coordinated genocides, coordinated wars, from starvate, mass starvation at the behest of the mm -hmm. state. So the ratio of people who've died from individual criminals to people who have died at the hands of one state or another, it, it's got to be at least like 100 to 1 or 1,000 to 1. Yeah, I mean, it, the numbers are probably staggering. I would be interested to see <laughs> several orders of magnitude is what I would guess is how much more dangerous or, you know, how much, yeah, how much worse the state is in that regard, just innocent lives lost at the hands of the state has got to be a lot. A lot yeah. Better. And you, you know, you, so the libertarian stance on guns would be any guns that the state is allowed to have individual law abiding citizens should be allowed to have. And mm. I pretty much agree with that myself. Um, I think obviously there are some corner cases, like once you talk about nuclear, nuclear weapons and things like that, mm -hmm. then you definitely need a certain level of expertise. But to, even in those cases, I don't see why you couldn't have a really competent private organization as opposed to the state. And the, the only reason for the state to be the, you know, the sole group that has that power is if you think the state is more ethically and rationally uh, able to coordinate than a private institution. And I just, I don't quite see why the state is more trustworthy than a private institution. Um, yeah. The one thing I would say there is like with, with a private institution, there, there would be people at the bottom that don't get coverage. I'm assuming everyone would have to pay for this private institution for coverage. Or like, is there, is there some way that we could go that private institution route where everybody has some form of service? And, and maybe, maybe there is, maybe there is a way where it's like not necessarily being paid um, with dollars. Maybe it's 
something else, like living in a certain part, like there are regions controlled by private protection agencies. I don't know. What do you think? Like how, what about the people at the bottom? Like can, can everybody get access to this kind of thing? So first of all, I would say for most people at the bottom, there's no reason why anyone would attack them with a nuclear bomb. Right. It's you only are generally going to want to use that kind of level of of weapon against another powerful authoritarian state. So your average pleb living in Costa Rica, you know, is not really under any risk of being bombed or having you know, yeah. hypersonic weapons launched at them. So it really is uniquely a risk for other powerful states that threaten the power dominance of another powerful state. And so I could see one way where it could evolve over time is, you know, for instance, Apple and Google and some of these major tech companies, they have huge headquarters and they have major server farms and they need to protect those because there is a risk that maybe, you know, China or Iran or someone would try to bomb all of the Google servers or Apple servers or or something like that. So I could see a situation where like those powerful organizations have their own ways of detecting incoming missiles and offensive systems and things like that, um, mm. which to me doesn't sound a whole lot worse than the centralized government military running that. I don't necessarily love that vision of the future, mm. but it doesn't seem that much worse to me than... Uh, yeah, it's, it's almost like where, where do the incentives differ? And which in, which incentive structure would be better to live in for the individuals? Like the there's there's a benefit of having a an organization that's dedicated to serving and protecting that doesn't isn't necessarily driven by profit to a degree. I would yeah at least you know on, at fair. first glance at first glance, but at the um, at the biggest levels, everybody, I think that the state is probably more prone to corruption. And there are things we don't understand about, you know, what goes on behind closed doors, what kinds of deals are struck. Um, like, it, it's hard to know how much corruption there is, you know, in some countries, it's really bad. And, and you know, you hear about Mexico, for example, and the the whole police force is essentially owned by the cartels. And that's the kind of system where it's it seems like the there's this illusion of having safety with the, the state run departments and protection, but ultimately the you know that the the end result is all of the interests of the cartels are what's being, you know, protected. And if, if the people are protected in some cases, sure. As long as they're compliant with the ideology of the cartels and the, the whims and strategies that they're going for. So yeah, I I think that it just depends on what kind of incentive structure there is. And, And monetary policy is a huge aspect there. It's almost like that's fundamental. Right. And I think you get it, get at something really important, which is that when the intention of the state is morally sound, 
then mm-hmm. it does have the moral high ground and people who fight on behalf of the United States also have a reason to fight for it because you're fighting for freedom. You're fighting to make sure that East Germany doesn't fall under authoritarian communist rule. You're, you're mm-hmm. fighting for something very real, fighting so that people mm-hmm. don't get put into a gas chamber, right? Like that's, that is a case where the state is very much in the right. And I agree, it's better to have that than to have just, you know, mercenary soldiers that are only doing it for money. But I think one of the things that's happened over time is that since we have moved towards the petrodollar system in particular, so after Nixon took the U.S. off the gold standard in 1971, you could no longer convert your dollars into gold. Then they basically switched to having, okay, but you can only buy oil with dollars. So that was, it was kind of like dollars were backed by oil. And then that created a whole new set of incentives where, in order to create the stability for the petrodollar system, we had to make sure that the Middle Eastern countries that were producing oil only sold their oil for dollars. So a lot of the wars in the Middle East were really fought to stabilize the petrodollar system. They weren't really fought because Saddam Hussein was a horrible dictator, which he you know, very well may have been. But the real reason we invaded uh, the Middle East is to make sure that he only sold oil for dollars. Same thing with Muammar Gaddafi. He was trying to sell his oil for gold and you know create sort of like a new African currency backed by gold. And so that was threatening the stability of the petrodollar system. And we're seeing today that the army, the US military forces are having a really hard time recruiting members because there is doesn't seem to be a moral high ground anymore. I mean, obviously we talk about how bad China is or how bad Putin is, but it doesn't seem like the wars we're fighting recently are really about liberation. They're really more about maintaining the stability of the dollar's dominance in the world. Yeah, it it is interesting to think about and maybe a little scary to think about how deep U.S. hegemony actually runs. Um. Just if you look at how how many countries the U.S. occupies and how dominant we've been, it almost seems like the the military is a means of enforcing the U.S. reserve currency, like you were saying. Yeah, but, and that's that's also makes it very fragile because we're getting mm-hmm. so overextended that mm-hmm. all of a sudden, if the debt bubble bursts, it's kind of like the late Roman Empire where it had spread itself so thin, expanding and expanding and expanding. And it had to pay for all of these soldiers and military outposts all throughout the Roman Empire, that as soon as the economy started to collapse, and they had introduced more silver and copper into the gold coins, so they weren't worth as much, the soldiers stopped being willing to fight. And they actually, for some period of time, they paid them in salt, because it was more stable than paying them in these devalued coins. So that's where the term, you know, worth your salt comes from. And, but eventually they just could no longer manage all of this bloated bureaucracy. And that's when the Roman empire broke up. And it feels like we're at a similar point now where there's so much debt burden and things are breaking so quickly in the fiat petrodollar economy. And already Russia has been kicked off of SWIFT. Already China is kind of working on their own 
currency system outside of the U.S. with their Belt and Road Initiative, the pieces are already starting to break. And so I, I see it as quite likely that the U.S. continues to get spread too thin and we're actually more at risk of state collapse than the state becoming like crazy, powerful and, and authoritarian like there is in China. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, from a libertarian perspective, maybe that's a good thing and maybe that provides the new beginning that we need to create the next cycle. Where yeah, we can I mean, if you think yeah. about eco, yeah, if you think about ecosystems in, or biological systems in general, they're a, a healthy process that takes place. And we've talked about this, you know, on a future a previous season. Um, but forest fires are very healthy for the thriving of forests in general because it it can allow for new types of new organisms, uh, new, just, uh, new, new systems to establish themselves because generally the, there are some really dominant, uh, species or at least, um, areas that were totally taken over by some species that are wiped out. And then, a a new pioneer species can come and, and start, you know, pretty much start from scratch, but it also starts the process of succession of whatever is going to come in the future. It's not necessarily going to look the same as it did previously. And that's a good thing for a robust system. Whereas right now it seems like we're just stretching the current system as far as we possibly can. And it can't go on forever there. That's just not the way that they work. And if, You know, part part of me has that thought. And then part of me has the thought of like, well, maybe, maybe we have the leverage now. Maybe it's possible for the U.S., given how fast information can travel, given how, how dominant they've been in a time when technology has provided insane leverage and capabilities. Maybe like we are positioned in a, in a place where when I say we, I mean the United States, um, like the United States is in a place where maybe they can they can hold on because the gap between the United States and all other countries might be that great. You know, it it's it's hard to say like how strong and embedded the U.S. is in the global ecosystem. Um, yeah, totally, and I think we're seeing that right now play out with the dollar milkshake theory, which is this theory that. As the dominoes start to fall, as you know, the global debt burden becomes so great and there's just not enough dollars around for the countries that need it, the dollar strengthens relative to all other fiat currencies. And we're seeing that really intensely right now with Europe, where all these European currencies are falling as the dollar energy is going way up. Like in Germany, it's like up a crazy amount and you know, same thing with other other countries all around the world, where basically the dollar is the top of this pyramid. Some would call it a Ponzi scheme of all the fiat currencies. And so as the other currencies fail, people still need dollars because that's what all the debt is denominated in. And so the dollar actually has been strengthening over and over. And I think the key change that's happened since 2008 is in 2008, that was a housing bubble. And Basically, rather than actually let the zombie corporations fail 
so that, like you said, with the forest example, we can allow a small brush fire to occur so that the health of the forest is maintained. Rather than allowing that to happen, we basically bailed out all these zombie corporations that really shouldn't have been surviving anyways. And by doing that, we moved the debt crisis from the housing industry to the sovereign level. So now it's basically the U.S. that has all of the debt risk and all the other sovereign countries that also have debt risk rather than just any one industry like the housing industry. And so we're going to see the next step is sovereign defaults, like other sovereign nations defaulting. But you're right that the U.S. will likely be the last one, if not you know one of the last ones, to still be standing. And then so the big question is, what do these other sovereign nations do as they start to collapse? Do they then just you know hop on the CBDC bandwagon and they basically become like give up their own sovereignty to become a vassal of the U.S. or you know, whoever's really running CBDCs, or do they say, hey, let's get out of this whole fiat debt system and let's go to a Bitcoin standard or let's go to back to a gold standard or let's create a commodity backed currency because we're Russia and we have a lot of oil or, you know, whatever each individual country may be. And that's going to be the really interesting thing to see play out is how do these nation states respond to the collapsing house of fiat cards? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a, a weird time and it might even be a time that the United States acquires even more power. If there's collapsing of other countries, what if the U S is able to get in before a, a different kind of standard emerges and hold it off? Um, I, I have, you know, a preference for the more decentralized system, of course, but the U.S. and these other these other countries that have a, a real stake in the current system are not going to go down without a fight. So yeah. I wonder I wonder what the the optimal path is there. <laughs> yeah, there's always this path dependence. You know, like we're we're already in this system that exists, and there needs to be some some way to wean off of the old system. Or just end the old system, whether that's a wean or more of a, an explosion of the old system. So yeah, I don't know. What do yeah. you think? <laughs> well, let's let's touch on those in the future scenarios. Okay. Um, but I did want to just touch on a few things about different issues and how libertarians and statists respond to those because I think it's mm-hmm. just important. Oh, right. Yes. To understand the philosophy. So another important issue is what to do with individual autonomy, like bodily autonomy. And Mm -hmm. I would say the single most important philosophical rooting of libertarianism is that property rights are key. And your property rights start with your body. So to actually be in control of your own body, which would mean things like not, you know, not having anyone violate your body, like no one can assault you physically, but also no one can force you to have an injection that you don't want. No one can Mm -hmm. force you to have an abortion or not have an abortion. Basically anything that relates to your physical body and also property that you control, you, the individual have control over that. So I think you can take whatever drugs you want. If like, yeah, exactly. So yeah, if you want to smoke marijuana all day and have 10 booster shots and, 
and you want to, uh, you know, have abortions or not have abortions, like it's all up to you. And that I think is really powerful standpoint. And mm-hmm. whereas the statist approach is either like, oh, we have to ban all abortions or we have to mandate that everyone has the right to abortion. It's like, mm-hmm. or, or for vaccines, it's like, we have to either like ban them, they're not safe, or we have to mandate them. Everyone has to have vaccines. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can take this for like, any number of issues, but I found that the libertarian rooting of just letting individuals decide what's best for themselves, to me, is a much healthier philosophy because it just gives power to people and you're trusting in the wisdom of the crowd. And yeah, a lot of people are going to be stupid about it and they'll do the wrong thing. But over time, the people will learn and it will create the right result if you just allow the free market forces and free individual decisions to be made. Whereas if you only mandate one outcome from the state perspective, you're losing that flexibility of people to decide what's right for their specific situation and to learn from the mistakes uh, or successes of others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, I think the, the status side of this is coming from a good place. You know, they want to protect people's safety and, the, the problem is who determines what's safe and is like, why? So like one of, one of the prime examples is, is it, is it safe to smoke some weed or is it, is it not? And the, most of the country, most of the U S has determined that no, for recreational use, it's not okay. And most of the world has determined it's not okay, but but where, where is this, what is this based off of? There, there are definitely some studies that show that there, there are harmful effects, but there are far more harmful effects of drinking alcohol. So like what, who's deciding what is, what is more, more dangerous for the individual? And why can't, why can't we decide for ourselves what kinds of risks we want to take? Of course, there's quality control. That's a, that's a big thing that regulation is probably important for but this also gets into the incentives of government which are fundamentally Mm -hmm. different than the incentives of individuals because Mm -hmm. most people like to think that the government just does what is best for everyone from just a safety and health and well-being perspective but the reality is government does what's best for itself and and maintaining its own profitability and survival And so like the marijuana example is great because marijuana is basically an open source plant. Like you can't really (laughs) own or patent marijuana. It's just something like they literally call it weed because it'll grow from the cracks of concrete. It's like very resilient. And Mm -hmm. so, and whereas you take something like opioids, which can be patented and the state can regulate and tax them and make a ton of money from opioids and opioids are way more harmful than marijuana. But guess what? Mm-hmm. The state loves opioids and loves to have people pre- have prescriptions to these and so they can regulate and tax them and earn an income. And by the way, it kind of keeps people like mellow and not as rebellious. Mm-hmm. Whereas like more recreational drugs, yeah. yeah, like any of the psychedelics or marijuana, it's like the state has nothing to gain and it kind of loses the control that it has by allowing those things to freely flourish. 
Um, so it doesn't always do what's best for people. It really does what's best for itself in the case of whether it's guns or recreational drugs or any number of these issues. Yep. But now, yeah, maybe now it's good to go into the future scenarios. So let's start with the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. What is the worst case scenario from a statist perspective first? So I think the the worst case scenario from, you know, from the statist perspective is something along the lines of a 1984 where it's a total surveillance state. Everyone is controlled almost entirely by the state and what is okay and not okay is determined by the state. Essentially, it's, it is the, the true opposite of libertarianism. And also the power, the, the people in power do not have good intentions and they're bad actors. Um, so there's, this isn't to say that every pure statist future is a bad one. But yeah. when there when you when you have complete control by people that are in it for accumulating power for themselves that's where i see the you know the worst case scenario panning out where nobody has any freedom and you can't think what <laughs> i mean thought crimes is ultimately like the worst thing i can think of for for this sort of scenario if you can't just have thoughts that are different from what the state wants that that just seems like a horrible outcome um you know but then then you also have the situation of like if that was imposed on us right now obviously we we know what it was what it was like to have freedom at least to a pretty reasonable degree and what about the future generations? What if what if this worst case scenario makes people believe that this is the best for them? And again, it's like a 1984 scenario where you have children turning in their parents for for thought crimes for um, you know for eating, it just, eating it, too much meat or using too much gasoline or, or saying <laughs> uh, you know mis- using the wrong pronoun or. Like any number yeah. of things that are perceived. Your shower as... was a little too long. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you've, you've exhaled too much CO2 for your allotment today because you were working out hard. <laughs> yeah, but... but they might think it's great. The, the, the children that were raised in that environment might, you know, feel like they have purpose to serve the state. But, yeah, but from, yeah. from like a total objective standpoint, and moral standpoint, I think that's, oh, it, it just, it irks me to think of a future like that. You know, it, it makes me, it, it makes me cringe when I uh, think of that being a possibility because it's just, it's not a, a future where I think we're living up to the full potential of humanity. You know, I think you can't reach the full potential of humanity in that kind of environment. Right, right. It's almost like rather than having all of these individual neurons in a neural net deciding what's best on an individual level, 
you just have mm -hmm. one mega neuron that tells all the other neurons what to do. And it becomes almost like a hive mentality or like, yes. a, like a hive system. And I was reading this article about, you know, who killed more Hitler, Stalin or Mao. And it goes through the numbers of how many people died through starvation and warfare and all of the purging of dissidents mm -hmm. and things like that. And the reality is, is that, uh, communist dictator or a fascist dictator is really like the same outcome so oftentimes today you'll hear people who are on the left say oh my gosh you know, trump is a fascist or this person's a fascist we got to take down all these fascists and then you'll have people on the right saying oh you know uh you know biden's a communist or hillary's a communist we got to get rid of these communists and to me, it's just so ridiculous. It doesn't matter whether you're a fascist or a communist. It's like if a boot is stepping on your head, it doesn't matter if it's a blue boot or a red boot. It's like you're still getting stomped on. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think the liberal conservative divide misses, that the libertarian authoritarian divide nails, is this idea of how much individual liberty do you really have versus how much are you giving up to the state for the collective good, whether that's to get rid of any kind of oppression so everyone is totally equal, or it's to get rid of people using too much energy and having too big of a carbon footprint. And part of my concern is that a lot of all of these issues have grains of truth, right? Like there are there is too much pollution. And we do need to have common sense laws to limit pollution and limit the loss of biodiversity. But at the same time, these, these uh, narratives are being used to limit individual liberty. And if the state is able to tax every exhale of carbon dioxide that you breathe out, that is a path to having total control over any, every individual. So my worst case scenario would basically be like a Western version of the CCP, where there's total surveillance, everyone uses CBDCs, you can't buy certain things if you're not a, if you don't have the right social credit score so you can only buy like you know five pounds of meat a week a gallon of gas a week like whatever those limitations are and everything you do is tracked and monitored and scored and some people have even called this a thousand year prison because based on how good artificial intelligence is and how good the information systems are the ability for an authoritarian to command and control everyone is far greater now than Hitler or Stalin or Mao could have ever dreamed of. So mm -hmm. there is a very real risk of us going down this path where we can't get out of the prison. Um, and, you know, even in the case of like Stalin, there's one famous story where everyone was applauding after Stalin gave a speech and no one wanted to be the first person to sit down. And so then finally, after like 10 minutes of people just exhaustively applauding, one guy uh, sat down and then everyone else sat down and then that guy got killed. <laughs> like, so it, it becomes this situation where people aren't focusing on, oh, how can I build the next great environmentally friendly business or the next great space exploration company? They're just focused on how do I keep my head down so I don't get targeted and how do I show loyalty to the regime. And so it's no longer a wealth creation game that we had in America's Gilded Age. It becomes a game of survival and pledging fealty to your dear leader. And like, that's just a horrific 
uh, future scenario, but yep. it does seem increasingly likely, or at least it's going further down that path. But now let's let's look at what's the worst case scenario for libertarianism. If we have a libertarian society, like if the state was just gone tomorrow, what in your mind is the worst case scenario for a libertarian outcome? Yeah, it seems like this would be like approaching pure anarchism. Um, mm-hmm. And that that's not to say that, you know, anarchism is bad in its entirety, but the, the worst case here would be we have every kind of every man for themselves. And I think what that would lead to is a point where nobody sees the bigger picture. There's not, there's no entity removed or there's, there's nothing big enough and removed enough to see the externalities caused by certain, you know, certain transactions, right? Like the, the success of a lot of businesses today are coming at the expense of, you know, just like development, like new development in, I mean, the, 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 the example that, you know, I, I always go to is when we're in a situation where it is more profitable to tear, tear down the Amazon rainforest and plant farms of monocrop palm for palm oil and you know whatever else can come from that we're we're not in a good place and i could see that going to the extreme where it it would turn into this environment where it's all about resource extraction and the incentives are not aligned to the point where externalities are just like they're always thought of as externalities like they're never priced into whatever production is happening and yeah, like a tragedy i worry yeah yeah i feel like we're we're going down that path to an extent um but also like we kind of have to because there are so many humans to feed and to you know w- we need to support eight billion humans right now and by default there's going to be some natural environment destruction so that it it comes at the cost of the robustness of the overall system if every if it's every man for themselves if there's no like guiding principle the same way that our bodies work well with when we have sort of at least our our genome and our you know some some biological fundamental biological processes that keep us in place. Like we need, we need an overarching system to kind of keep things safe, but that doesn't necessarily need to be through centralization. It, well, I'm, I'm getting into some different scenarios, yeah, yeah. but. <laughs> but yeah, one yeah. thing just on that point you made is that there is very much this prominent argument now that if we let things just run laissez-faire, everyone can use whatever resources they want we would basically strip out all natural resources and the human population would grow beyond the carrying capacity of earth. And then that would Mm -hmm. lead to a major population decline and disaster. Mm -hmm. The one counter to that is if you look at the actual birth rates and the demographics, Mm -hmm. we are arguably entering a period of depopulation already because so Mm -hmm. few people are giving birth in, especially in Western Europe and North America 
and most of the quote unquote first world countries, we're seeing massive declines in birth rate. And Elon Musk even had said recently that he thinks declining birth rates are the single greatest challenge. So I guess my counter mm. to that point is that even if we yeah. did start to like take down the Amazon and put up palm, you know, trees for palm oil, I don't know if that would necessarily lead to like all the Amazon being gone before like all humans are gone. Or even if a lot of the Amazon did get eliminated, you know, humans might then die out, but then the trees would regrow. So Yeah. I'd just like to avoid that, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. totally. <laughs> Um, yeah, I guess as far as my worst case scenario for libertarianism, a lot of people will bring up Somalia. And I do think that's a legitimate Mm -hmm. case to bring up where Somalia is considered a failed state and they've had constant wars between, uh, you know, warring tribes. They've had pandemic climate issues, crop failures, like all types of issues. There's pirates, uh, you know, marauding on the, on the coastline. And if they're like, if we woke up tomorrow and the U.S. government no longer existed, like proof, it was just gone. Like there's no police, no army, uh, no, no IRS, no, no one like basically enforcing the rules, then there could be a kind of a Mad Max scenario where everyone is fighting it out. And whoever happens to have the most resources, they then create their own sort of militias and then they defend their resources and other people are starving. And then you have these, you know, warring tribes over whoever has the water or the gasoline or the food or the ammunition or whatever it is. And that could ultimately lead to sort of a feudal system, which is what we had in medieval Europe, where you have like your local king, your earls and barons, your knights, your peasants, and all of society would basically fracture into these different mini feudal systems. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's not ideal if you are one of the peasants. Um, Now I would say to say if this is worse than the thousand year CBDC AI prison, (laughs) honestly, like I'd rather live in a feudal society or even like a Mad Mm -hmm. Max society than one where like every day you basically don't have any free choice. You have to just do exactly what the state tells you or else you'll get Mm -hmm. thrown in the gulag. Like I'd rather live in a a dangerous freedom scenario, like even if it's Mad Max, than one where you basically just have no freedom or autonomy at all. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's that's me. I know a lot of people who would rather live in a safe, uh, you know, the state makes sure you're well-fed. It's kind of like the case of, would you rather be a lion in the zoo who has all your food provided for you? You're safely in your enclosure with bars on all mm-hmm. side. Um, but like, or would you rather be a lion roaming in the savanna who at any time you could starve or you could get killed by poachers, but Hey, at least you're free and you're roaming in the savanna. Like I'd rather mm-hmm. be the, the free lion than the caged one personally. Yeah. Yeah. It's the thing about the, the dangerous life is like, I I'm totally with you. Um, I'm totally with you. I would rather live in a, a dangerous free society. And it, th- the only thing there is like the, it kind of exacerbates the meritocracy of libertarianism sort of, uh, embodies is like, if, 
if you are if you are not a capable individual, it's it would be very hard to live in one of those environments, and there would be a lot of a lot of um, death and destruction if you are not a capable individual. You know, you're if you couldn't protect your loved ones, if you couldn't protect yourself first of all. You know, it would just lead to a potentially dangerous scenario, but it just it could be it could be really nice to if if you were maybe not on on the spectrum of wanting to really take care of your day-to-day living and existence and protecting yourself like you said you just live in your own little bubble and are blissfully unaware or just don't really question the <laughs> the the prison that you're in you just kind of let it happen so i, I just could see why yeah. people would would be drawn towards that. Yeah. And that's, that's why it probably would devolve into some form of feudalism. Cause mm-hmm. if you're not self-sufficient, you'd need to latch on to someone else who was. Yep. And yep. you know, it's, there's obviously pros and cons to that. Yeah. But now let's get into the best case scenario. Best case scenario. So Let's start with the best case scenario for statism. I, okay. I, I'll just I'll start it off and say yeah. that the ideal scenario from a statist point of view is you have a philosopher king. You have someone like Marcus Aurelius or Alexander the Great or mm-hmm. one of the other good Roman emperors who basically, because they are so philosophically sound, ethically minded, rational, and wants what's best for the people, they can basically make the hard decisions for their people and usher in a form of a utopia under their guidance and under their rulership. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we have had some great presidents in the past that have sort of taken on the philosopher King rule. I mean, even George Washington, you could say, but I would say like it's fundamentally has been very limited in American history. So I think probably a better a better uh, example would be, you know, something like the Roman Empire, or you know, the great Chinese dynasties um, mm-hmm. in the past. Or there are some examples of great rulership, um, and, and obviously, there's there's a lot of downsides and things I could say, but I guess I'll I'll leave mm-hmm. it at that. And do you have any other thoughts of like the best case scenario for statism? Yeah, it would be um, sort of like a a benevolent dictator AI sort of situation where the, the state is a super intelligent, you know, mm. AI of sorts that has sensory mechanisms to like all over, you know, it can, it can sense the, the individual freedom. Again, this is like, this might sound a little dystopian, but it's all about the intentions. So, um, if this benevolent AI was everywhere and permeated everything, had the you know the information of anything that was happening and how it was evolving, then you could envision a utopia where this this AI essentially paved the way to freedom for everyone. It was almost like this this parent, if you imagine a parent that's, you know, kind of helping a child work its way through an adventure, the child doesn't even know it's there. 
the parent is there helping and, you know, letting the child explore whatever he wants to explore. And I, I could see where this, this AI could just clear the path and then get out of the way and, you know, give, it, it could raise the floor of humanity far beyond anything we can think about. But again, this is a very, a very fine line because when does it turn into something where it has its own intentions? Like the, 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 the best, the best scenario involves like this thing working completely on behalf of humans and every other creature on earth to give them what they need and to let them thrive however they want to thrive and see fit for themselves to thrive. So it's a very far out there scenario and definitely not something I see as very likely because of, you know, the, the AI alignment problem. It seems like that would be a super difficult thing to solve um, for at least to that extreme. You know, I think in, in more narrow senses, it could, it could, it'll still be very helpful, but um, yeah, the, the best case for, for statism is, you know, thinking of uh, a benevolent AI as a, as the state in a way. Yeah. And then everyone can live exactly how they want to live and j- almost like imagine their own existence into reality. Um, yeah, that exactly. Thing just like enables this, it. <laughs> yeah. The super AI could basically, you know, take care of asteroids that are coming at earth or protect us from solar flares and, you know, make sure all the crops are growing and everyone's nicely fed and the water is mm-hmm. clean and, resolve mm-hmm. disputes in a very, you know, ethical manner. And mm-hmm. yeah, you could imagine a situation where we do create a totally benevolent AI that is almost like God, like omnipotent, yeah. omnibeloved, benevolent, and omnipresent. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, as you alluded to, it's like, there's really only one way to get that right. And there's infinite ways to get that wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so it is, it's quite a gamble to think yeah. that that's, that we're going to get it completely right. Yeah, um, All right, now let's talk about the best case scenario for libertarianism. And I, I can start this off and just say that I think really it's, it's not as scary as the AI scenario because it's more like going back to what we saw under the gold standard. And the two eras that I think are the best comparables to what we're about to experience are the Renaissance and the Gilded Age. So in the Renaissance in Europe, you had these wonderful uh, creations like the Duomo in Florence. Uh, You had Michelangelo's David. You had uh, the Sistine Chapel. You had all of these wonderful creations that really took decades of dedication to one's craft. And the reason people were able to dedicate themselves to doing what was truly the greatest potential they had within them was because they were all on a gold standard. And so they didn't have to worry as much about the future. They got paid in gold, they saved their gold, they gave it to their kids, and then their kids could use that gold to sustain their lifestyle. And then they could become the greatest craftsman or musician or painter or whatever it is, blacksmith that they, that they could ever be. And so you had these wonderful creations. And a more modern example was the Gilded Age where on the gold standard in America, we created this incredible prosperity that was the backbone of America and was part of the reason why we were stronger than the other nations and, you know, won both world wars. 
because we had this deep rooting in uh, you know doing things well and sound money and sound economics and and uh, you know all of these all of these things. Whereas now we're so short sighted with the the fiat cycles. So, you know, what would that mean for the future? I think that would mean a lot more incredible private enterprises like SpaceX all throughout the cosmos, you know, colonizing different planets. Um, and it's not like there's just one galactic empire, which would be like, you know, the statist AI approach where it's like one galactic empire that just like takes on these other planets. It would more be like the Republic in Star Wars where you have all different free individuals who decide of their own volition, hey, my dream is to go, you know, create my own colony on this moon orbiting Jupiter. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, things here on Earth, like people creating underwater cities like Atlantis or incredible things in, uh, you know, microbiology or computer science or simulations. But it would all be based on what different individuals want to do. And in some ways, it's almost like tapping into that same wisdom that the AI status approach is trying to tap into. But it's more like tapping into the inner wisdom of people and like what they mm-hmm. feel like they should do in their own life. And I'm much more bullish on this outcome. And I think now that we have Bitcoin and we have separation of money and state and people don't have to depend on the state for, you know, storing their value and they can store it more like gold, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. as in the Renaissance and the Gilded Age. I I see this as obviously a much better outcome and and more likely to be a good outcome than the best case Mm -hmm. scenario for statism. Yep. Yeah, I, I like that. And the the individual freedom is obviously the heart of the best case scenario. And one one of the one of the things that I, I think about here is there still has to be some kind of floor. Or there still is a, there's always a floor. Like what what is the the su- the human that suffers the most in these best case scenarios or the, you know, what, what does the, what does the bottom look like here? Because not everybody st- has the ability inherently to create, you know, the Sistine chapel or envision the Sistine chapel. So I was, I was envisioning a, a scenario where everyone has a sort of tool that's specific to them. Like everyone is almost given a, I can't, I'm going down that AI route again, but ever instead of having one benevolent AI, there's there's one open AI that everybody starts with. But it it's almost like so right now in, in AI you have these these models, and then you can fine tune those models after the fact. And what I imagine in the best case scenario for libertarianism is everyone gets gets this sort of AI assistant how and the the assistant evolves with the human and augments the human in a way that lets them do whatever it is they want and have the individual freedom that they want or in the in the maximum amount of freedom that that is even possible it'll you know it, yeah, it could I give like them that. the ability to protect themselves it could give them the ability to to love somebody to be loved it could give them you know whatever whatever the individuals want is what this this ai could grow into and learn and evolve with the individual that it's tied to um and i think 
as long as everyone has the tools necessary to be a strong individual, even if some happen to be more strongly augmented by that tool than others, maybe some just want to use that tool as like a, a conversationalist to just bounce ideas off of, but maybe some heavily rely on this, this tool. Um, of course, that I could see this also going wrong where people just rely too heavily on, on their, their augmentation. But if it is technically a part of them, you know, it, it evolved with them. It is technically them in a way. Yeah, <laughs> and that would have more checks and balances too because uh-huh. it wouldn't be like one just dominating. And um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I really like that vision. It's kind of like everyone's Master Chief and they have their Cortana helping them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, sweet. Well, let's bring it home with the most likely scenario. Most likely scenario. Um, so the most likely scenario for statism to start? Yeah, let's do that. Or it can just be the most likely overall because... Yeah, I think it is kind of going to be a spectrum for the most likely right. scenario. Some elements of both. So in it does seem like there will be some parts of the world that and it, this is already true, that have gone the statist approach. It does seem like the the statist, uh, the statist approach is growing in certain population, in certain areas, and, you know, certain ideologies is starting to embrace the statism with the CBDC, with, you know, just centralized governments and control, control and it's, you know, the... That's definitely that's definitely a problem, but there is also a movement, you know, with with the entire decentralized. You know, we can we can discuss the merits of you know the the different cryptocurrencies, but Bitcoin is you know the 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 big one, the big one that can handle um, the this a new world where it it embraces libertarianism. I think, and it it embraces the sort of decentralization that we're going for. So there's, it's going to be a battle. Um, I I don't I don't know which one I would predict is going to win in the long term, but I I think I think that we're we're in a situation where there's going to be a a big fight, and their statism and centralization is not going to go down without a fight. And the, there's, there's going to be a lot of conflict, but I think the more paths there are to a decentralized world, the more likely it is that we can move down that path in a safe way without, without bloodshed, as much bloodshed, without as much, you know, um, suffering in general is uh, maybe the better way of putting it. So I don't yeah. know. I'm curious what your thoughts are. <laughs> yeah, I know. I have similar thoughts. I mean, Corey Klipstein calls it the race to avoid to avoid the war. Basically, if enough people can adopt self-sovereignty through Bitcoin, mm-hmm. then there won't be a war because enough powerful people will already be incentivized to allow people to self-custody their own wealth and transact freely in a peer-to-peer way without trusted third parties. And it seems like we are pretty far along there already in adoption. 
but they're like you mentioned they're the powers that be also aren't going to go down without a fight and there's a lot of reasons why they would want to maintain their control over the monetary system and mm-hmm. i would say just to a larger you know the larger trend here is that statism and libertarianism is can kind of be thought of as a cycle where there's peak centralization whenever there's a great reset and then it becomes more and more decentralized until the whole previous system breaks down and then it gets bundled again into a new system and so you see this in the rise and decline of empires and mm-hmm. so you could consider like after world war ii we had the new world order we had peace prosperity and productivity then you start to have this major bubble big wealth gap big debt burden then all of a sudden things burst the the system starts to break you try to save the system by printing money and credit and imposing more strict rules. Eventually you have wars, debt restructuring, and then a total collapse. And then the new world order starts over again. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what's likely to happen. And I think the way that it plays out is really everyone is going to have a decision to make. And if you don't make a decision, the default decision is you go with the CBDC authoritarianism. Like if you keep all your money in stocks and bonds, like the 60-40 portfolio, you don't self-custody any like gold or Bitcoin on your own. It's all just held in these third-party institutions that are at the behest of the state. You are going to, by default, go into a CBDC reality where, yes, you'll get nice, you know, stimmy checks to pay for your your bug bug burgers. And, uh, you know, you can live in your little pod with your low carbon footprint. And every transaction will be monitored uh, and graded by the state. That's the default outcome if you don't decide to take responsibility for your own wealth and your own sovereignty. But at any, at any point, whether it's now, a month from now, a year from now, or 10 years from now, you can decide to opt out and to take some of your future into your own hands by putting some money into Bitcoin, self-custodying it, So then you can decide how you want to spend money and no one can steal that money from you unless they torture you into giving them their 12 words. And yes, they could do that on an individual level. They could go door to door and torture people to give them their 12 words, but it's just not feasible to do that at scale. And there's so many counter defenses. Like you can have a decoy 12 words that only has a smaller amount of what you've stored. You can have it in multiple locations, so they can't just go to one area to take it. So fundamentally, cryptography favors defenders, and now the power dynamic has shifted. And anyone who has the courage to become a sovereign individual now also has the means to be a sovereign individual. And so I think basically as we see things get more and more intense, as inflation keeps running high, while the debt burden gets worse and worse, while there's more um, conflicts between different powers around the world, we're going to see more of an incentive for people to opt out of the fiat system and join the Bitcoin system. And so I think the new world order by, let's say, the year 2050 is going to be most people in most parts of the world will be on a Bitcoin standard and will have more freedom and more like the Gilded Age of America or, you know, the early days of America, but all around the world, not just in America. But there are still going to be authoritarian holdouts 
just like how today there's North Korea, which never really, you know, became part of the modern interconnected global world. We're still going to have that and probably more of those authoritarian enclaves by 2050 for people that just don't have the courage, don't have the wherewithal, didn't think to ask and and Mm -hmm. never opted out. Um, So I really do think it's going to be like everywhere. And um, just one final final quote I'll, I'll say is that Benjamin Franklin said, when the people find that they can vote themselves money, that will herald the end of the republic. And I think we are in this, we're in this tipping point now where people realize they can vote for a candidate who will forgive their student loans or who will give them stimmy checks or who will Mm -hmm. subsidize their gas. And once you start to go down that path, that's, that's going to be the end of the system because you're Mm -hmm. breaking all the free market incentives that created the prosperity we have today. And there's no longer an incentive to create a new oil company if all your profits are getting stolen. Mm-hmm. And so I think we are pretty much in the uh, the ninth inning here. And, you know, it could still take another five, 10 years. But it seems to me like the age of fiat is ending and the age of multiple different currency systems, whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's like a lot of Bitcoin standard countries or some that are commodity backed or gold backed, like it's very clear that the global system of finance is fracturing. And now I think every nation and every individual is going to have to make a decision. Do you want to take responsibility and go the libertarian path of -hmm. self-sovereignty or are you too afraid and you'll just go the default path of authoritarianism because it's safe, it's what you know, and you can't handle the responsibility of keeping your own wealth and maintaining your Mm -hmm. own security. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's going to be difficult for some people because people in general tend to not want to think about that stuff. But the better tools that exist that allow people to do this in the easiest way, that's the path. That's the path to get there. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. Thank you all for tuning in. And we'll see you next time. The past, the present, and the future.